So Acts 19, starting at verse 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and around the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted, in unison, for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Thanks, Greg. So Acts 19, 21 to 41. Uh, here we see the spread of the gospel. Uh, and here's our first point. The gospel and the spread of the gospel faces opposition from other gods. You see, Christianity is always a threat. It upsets the cultural norm. Wherever you live, whatever culture you are part of, Christianity upsets that norm. And Luke, the author of Acts, he wrote one of the Gospels and his sequel is the book of Acts. He, he writes so that Theophilus, who he writes to, an important man, and every reader thereafter, he writes so that they may have certainty, 
absolute certainty around the credibility of the Christian message. Luke chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, he says this, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, his first book and his second book, Acts. So that we may know, so that we may know and hold tight to the certainty of the things that we know are right and true. And yet, we see that throughout the book of Acts, the gospel is turning the world upside down. We're still in Ephesus, port, just on the west coast of modern day Turkey. And we see there... Demetrius, the chief silversmith of the town. His job was making replica goddesses of Artemis. His Artemis, a Greek goddess of hunting. There's the statue of her on the left. Here's a modern day translation of art of the Greek goddess Artemis. Goddess of hunting and associated with help and health. Especially with women at childbirth. This was what they trusted in, what they believed in. The goddess that would help in certain areas of society. And we read in verse 35, uh, and we understand uh, thereafter uh, about this great temple uh, that was made. The temple that would house uh, this great goddess, Artemis. The great Temple set on the hillside at Ephesus. Read there at the end. She is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven. Said a meteorite fell from heaven. And here is the goddess Artemis. Here she is. The temple, you'll see on the picture, uh, was once... One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there was an annual festival. A week long sex party. It was. With the temple prostitutes of the time. That was who they worshipped. The Greek goddess Artemis. And you see what the gospel is doing. It's turning that world upside down. Because Paul is coming in and look at Demetrius verse 26. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Here he is, Demetrius, chief silversmith. His job to make the silver replicas of the great goddess Artemis and to sell them for good money. See what he says at the end of verse 27. It's wonderfully ironic. It's so logical. Listen to what he says again. He says, this is Demetrius saying of Paul, that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Hasn't he got a point? As Paul and the Christians are razzed through into the, into the, the temple of the time. Uh, Into the theatre, sorry. Uh, And they're being questioned because there's a riot. Because what Paul is doing is he's robbing. He's robbing 
the, gold, the uh, silversmiths of their job. And he's robbing the place of the queen, of the goddess Artemis, in whom they trust. He's turning the culture upside down. And it's a crazy assertion, isn't it? As Demetrius says of Paul, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Well, he's got a great point, Demetrius, in a weird upside down way, hasn't he? It's a crazy assertion that that a, a, a created trinket, a model of the goddess Artemis, that is made by human hands, has then godly powers to help in health and childbirth. Last time we were in London, outside Horse Guards Parade, we picked up a, a trinket of Big Ben. And ridiculous to think that we would take this trinket home and gather ourselves around as a family and worship this trinket. Worship the the God of Big Ben. How can we? It's made by human hands. Imagine us taking that trinket home and gathering around it and worshipping it. It's a crazy assertion that a God would be in something that human hands have made. But you see what Demetrius is saying? It's robbing us. It's robbing us. He's made money. He's got a a livelihood from putting gods into small trinkets. Crazy assertion. Yet, like so many in our Western culture, people have bought into lucky charms, the horseshoe on the gatepost, the picture uh, of the family, the rosemary breeds, the lucky pants, just before a big game. The ritual before the big day, the reciting a certain mantra to yourself in the mirror, the left boot on before the right boot, the last one out to walk onto the pitch. These gods that we've made up, that perhaps we kind of hold to weirdly in our own heads. We say, oh, no, they're only lucky charms. But interesting to think about this in society. Demetrius is saying that Paul is robbing us. And the crowd are furious. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They scream, they shout in verse 28. Christianity is trouble. It robs us of our identity, they could be saying. It's robbing us of our dignity. It's robbing us of our gods. And you see, the gospel always faces opposition from other gods. How does the Christian faith speak into the public sphere or the public square? How do we let the truth of the gospel affect the culture that we live in? How do we do this well, knowing that it's going to turn it upside down if people are going to listen? I know it's something that John is thinking about all of his working life at Christians in Sport. How do we take the good news of Jesus, take it into the world of sport in such a way that the world of sport would listen and would think? Oh, what about our world and the gods that we love and the gods that we worship? Of course, we wouldn't use that language. But what has Christianity got to say about the culture, about our belief system, about our lifestyle, about our worldview? 
about the things that we trust in. Christianity speaking into the public square. And before we just think that it's out there, what about in our own hearts and lives? How does our hope in the gospel confront our mini-gods that still hold sway on our life? If you're a Christian, those mini-gods that you still hold to or threaten to disturb your trust in the Lord Jesus. What do we do with them? The God of comfort the god of popularity the god of morality the god of pleasure the god of desire the god of friendships the god of family the god of reputation the god of sport the god of the remote control you see anything that takes the place of the creator and the saving god of the bible is a god Where do your mini-gods rage against the gospel, the true God, the God that you hold to if you claim to be a Christian today? Do you know it's worth us calling them out? It's worth us identifying them. I was in a, a gathering this week and somebody said quite openly and clearly, do you know what? It's a God for me. It's materialism. I've got to be really careful with it because it pulls me. It threatens to oppose my trust in the Lord Jesus. I know that my trust in the Lord Jesus has turned my world upside down, but it it still has sway. This mini God in my life. Identify those mini gods. Get someone to pray for you around those mini gods. Look back in Ephesus. Soon the whole city is in uproar there's confusion you see there's a wonderful line and greg read it so well look at verse 32 the assembly was in confusion some were shouting one thing some another most of the people did not even know why they were there isn't that so similar to today it's the kind of thing we see today when people uh, try and think about christianity and have such Offence against it. Not just in the public square, but amongst the people we share our lives with. The Christian faith is, is maligned. It, it's, it's discredited on the basis of what people think it is saying, rather than what it is saying. There's confusion. People don't know why they're so against Christian values. That have been set up. I remember uh, on a school mission to Marlborough School some years back. A voice from the back. All right. Why is it that Christians hate gay people? That's the question. In a room of a hundred people. I tried to answer it in the most gentle of ways. It went something like this. In fact I wish it went like this. I'm sure it didn't quite. But. Listen to my answer. Wow. What makes you think that? And I went on to briefly describe the root of the Christian faith. And look, it's Christians who trust in a God who's designed mankind in a loving and wonderful way. He's designed every human being with dignity that's made in his image. 
a design that is centred around the values of diversity and equality. A, a care seen in Jesus that is unrivaled in any other human being. A love seen at the cross that deals with the rejection of God and gives us acceptance by him. If you think that Christians hate gay people, it's a complete misunderstanding and confusion that you have with the Christian faith. How do we operate in the public sphere, the public square? How do we operate with people who are opposed to the gospel because of those gods that they trust in? How do we do it? Do you know we're not trying to persuade people to act Christianly? You know we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to tell them to act differently, to be different, to, to, to even hold to Christian values. That's not what we're trying to do. We're helping them see that a saviour is all they need. And we're helping them see that that saviour is God himself in the form of a man called Jesus Christ. Because their gods will not save them. But when the public sphere challenges our views around certain issues, and they say, cool, you say this and you don't say that, and you don't like this and you do say that, well, we will and we can defend the Christian faith with love and graciousness. We must. Well, here in Acts 19, they find no case. Verse 37, as the city clerk quietens the crowd, says, whoa, 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 what's going on? You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. And there's danger that the mob will be charged for rioting. The assembly is dismissed and the journey moves on. On we go. You see... See what happens? Wonderfully. The spread of the gospel, it will face opposition from other gods. Yet the gospel always addresses it, always has an answer. And we pray that that would be the same in our lives. Greg, let's go. Next, we'll go chapter 20, verses 1 to 38. And... You've got to trust me on this. Uh, My speaking gets shorter in every section that we go on. Greg, let's go. Chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled throughout that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sophita, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. 
Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms round him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Thanks, Greg. Back in 19, verse 21, Paul has his sights set on Jerusalem. And now they move 
from Ephesus as they continue to spread the gospel. Did you notice the first couple of verses? What Paul's message is full of? Look there, look down with me, verse 20. Uh, sorry, chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for his, the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arriving in Greece. Uh, off he goes. We'll see uh, on the map uh, where Paul does go. Um, if you can follow uh, the pink so there's the journey on his third missionary journey. And look, see what his words are full of. Encouragement, it comes up twice in the first few verses. Paul gathers the disciples around him to encourage them. Then he speaks many words of encouragement to the people of Macedonia and then into Greece. We shouldn't miss this. It's pretty obvious. I know that the gospel will always bring encouraging words, but we shouldn't miss this. The gospel is full of encouragement. I wonder, are you encouraged today? Perhaps life is full of discouragements because of circumstances. A whole range of things, of course, financial issues, work relationships, hectic with the children, home improvements, caught up in habitual sin. Perhaps you're down there and you're discouraged. But the gospel always brings encouragement. It goes without saying where Paul goes with the gospel. It will always bring encouraging words. Why? Because the gospel always forces me to see myself as God does. Righteous. His child. Adopted. The gospel always helps me see that my sins and rejection of God will not be counted against me. The gospel reminds me. Of the heinous nature of an eternity without King Jesus. And that I won't be there. Because I'm going to be with my King. The gospel encourages me by turning my eyes to Jesus. To look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The gospel does that. I am his and he is mine. So throughout... Macedonia, as he travels back down again into Greece, they're the words that he teaches, full of encouragement. Now, from Greece, up we go, follow the pink line, the double pink line, uh, back up to Philippi. And then we get a boat to Troas. And in Troas, Luke records this fascinating story of this guy called Eutychus. It's a great option for a, a name. I know we're uh, baby mad at the moment, but if you've got a boy on the way, Eutychus surely is up there as a boy's name. Look what happens on the first day of the week. We come together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Luke is good. He's a good writer, isn't he? Because we can't help but find the funny side of the story. He writes with humour. Now, I've uh, seen some of you lot nod off from uh, time to time. 
Uh, usually when I'm sitting there and one of the other elders is preaching. Um, but but no, what, no, that's not true. Um, but isn't it great that we don't meet in an upstairs room three stories high and sit in windowsills? Because we'd be in trouble. Why does Luke include this story? What does it show? There's Utica sitting there and Paul is going on and on and on. Even Luke says it. I'm not embellishing it. And Eutychus falls out the window and Paul rushes down and he launches himself on him. And he comes back to life. It's a resurrection story. What is Luke doing? Including it here. Well, Luke shows that the word that Paul is preaching is authenticated by the power of God. It comes with power. Only Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, Peter and Paul in the Bible are ever involved in resurrection stories. And you see, as we read this, we see the power of God. It validates, it authenticates God's word. It's his spoken word that God wants communicated that reveals things about himself and about his rescue plan for his people. And that being the most important thing is validated. With a story like this, a story with resurrection power. Luke is saying, do you see the power that Paul preached with? The word has the power. But let me prove that it does. He authenticates it with a story of resurrection. Remember Paul in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, because it is the power of God. That's where the power lies in the gospel to everyone who believes. Why don't things happen like that today? You might hear stories of... Uh, One or two things. I've never seen it uh, myself. Why don't things happen like that today? A resurrection story? Well, you see, we have his word. If the miracle authenticates God's word, we have his word here in hand. And we see man's greatest need in his word. Paul, after the resurrection, he goes upstairs again and he breaks bread and he eats it. And after talking until daylight, wow, he left. The people took the young man home alive, verse 11. They were greatly comforted, I'm sure they were. He was dead, Eutychus, and now he's alive. And from Troas down to Miletus, just below Ephesus. Remember what happened in Ephesus, just the story before. Paul avoids Ephesus, but he sends for the elders from Ephesus because he wants to meet them. He wants to speak to them for the very last time. He urges with great affection. I've not held back anything from you. I have bought you the gospel. I have declared what you must do. Verse 24 is very precious. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Wonderful. Here's Paul. I'm on a mission. And look at verse 28 very quickly. Here's how the elders are are to continue. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas. Dear elders, watch yourself. Here's Richard Baxter. He wrote a whole book. I read this at Bible College. It was wonderfully helpful for me, the Reformed pastor. He wrote a whole book on verse 28 alone. Keep watch over yourself. 
And in it, he made great assertions of what that looks like. Let me share a couple with you. Keep watch over yourself, dear elder, that the work of saving grace be thoroughly achieved in your own soul. Be careful not to proclaim to the world the necessity of a saviour and in your own heart neglect him. That's gold. And he says this, keep watch over yourselves that you are not content with being in a state of grace, but also be careful that your graces are kept in vigorous and lively exercise and that you preach to yourselves the sermons which you study before you preach them to others. Keep watch, dear elder, over yourselves that you don't let your example contradict your doctrine. Don't say one thing with your tongues and undo this with your lives. One whole book, if you want to borrow it, you can. He was a pastor in the 16th century in Kidderminster. And he was faithful to the end. Richard Baxter. Here's the application, please. It's a selfish and needed application. Will you pray for the elders of town church? This is important. It's crucial. It's why Paul gathers them. Super on a Friday morning. When those of you who do, you pray, and recently we've prayed for the elders of Town Church. It's Paul's commendation to the elders. Keep watch over yourselves. This is a crucial role that you play. And later on, Revelation 2, perhaps you'll remember the letter from the angel to John about the church in Ephesus. And do you know the one thing that the angel says to John as John writes it down? The church in Ephesus have lost their first love. See what Paul is saying to the elders? Keep watch over yourselves. Later on, years later, angel to John, to the elders in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, you've lost your first love. Let's finish up with the final reading. Let's go Acts 21 verses 1 to 16. Thanks, Greg. Chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day, we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out to the city, and there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Greg, good reading. Thank you. This is it. Look, the spread of the gospel faces opposition from other gods. Spread of the gospel encourages us to keep watch over ourselves and then others. And the gospel, the spread of the gospel will go on and on and on. Let's see the map. We were in Troas. The, uh, the red cliff goes on, it's going to point to Troas just there. And now he sails to Miletus and then all the way uh, to Tyre. And here is Paul in the journey. Compelled by the Spirit. We see the Spirit in action, don't we, in these verses? But Paul is compelled by the Spirit. Just back uh, in chapter 20, verse 22, he said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And we see in these verses that the Holy Spirit is Warning him through other people too. Do you see that? Did you pick up that? A little bit odd, some of them. They landed at Tyre in verse 3, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit's at work. And then the prophet Agabus. Verse 10, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. This is not looking good for Paul and his fellow companions plead with him not to go. You see that in verse 12, but he goes, he goes prompted by the spirit. The spirit is warning And the Spirit isn't telling him to stop. The Spirit's warning him of what he will face. And he goes. He goes to Jerusalem regardless. He's ready to die for the name of Jesus. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem, says Paul. And when he would not be dissuaded, verse 14 We gave up, says Luke, and said, the Lord's will be done. What a fabulous conclusion that is, isn't it? It's a wonderful conclusion for us all. Where does it take us? What does it remind you of? It's reminiscent, of course, of the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember those words, yet not my will, but your will be done. The Lord's will be done. Verse 15, after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. So reminiscent of Jesus. Luke 9, 51. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And off Paul goes with the Spirit, the Comforter. It's the Spirit, not to save Paul from hardship, but to be there right with him. And right with us, in us. When the going gets tough, the spread of the gospel, you see, goes on and on and on. And in all those funny names of towns and in all those funny people that Paul met, it goes on and on and on. And it came to us.
that's the great journey of the gospel. The gospel, it found out me randomly on a night with a friend at university with the Bible open. The gospel found out me. And here's our task and it's an unfinished one. And we'll sing a song that speaks of this. We'll sing it as a prayer. The task is to continue taking the gospel on and on and on. What will the gospel do? Well, we know the gospel faces opposition from other gods. We know that. But encourages us to keep watch over ourselves and others. And the gospel will without fail go on and on and on with the Spirit's power. So let's sing. It's a rich song. And it's solemn in many ways. It's certainly not... To induce any kind of guilt, but it's meant to encourage us to think clearly about how we take the gospel on. It's glorious. There's some glorious truths in this song. So why don't we stand and sing and ponder and pray that God, by his grace and by the spirit, would take the gospel through us to the nations. Every corner of our lives with the people that we share life with. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.